0: If you have been with us over the summer months, you will know that we have been working our way through the letter to the Philippians, this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. And this morning, we are bringing our series to a completion. Uh, We're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. So I invite you to open your Bible, if you have one, or you can follow along. Uh, In the worship guide, the passage is printed there as well. So here we are, the end of Philippians. What have we learned so far? Well, we have learned, as I already mentioned, that this was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a church planter, pastor, uh, who made his way uh, throughout Europe, um, (laughs) preaching Jesus, living in light of the gospel, and helping establish churches. He did that very thing in the city of Philippi. In fact, the city of Philippi was the first uh, city in Europe that Paul proclaimed Jesus to. And so it's about 10 years later, this church has been going, and Paul is traveling. Um, He's getting into trouble for proclaiming Jesus in the Roman Empire. Uh, It's 10 years later, and Paul writes to this church in Philippi, who holds a special place in his heart. And that's going to really come out as we wrap up the series this morning. But we've already alluded to it, that this church was very much committed to supporting the Apostle Paul. They were in partnership with Paul when it came to his ministry of making Jesus known. And so Paul writes this letter to thank them, to encourage them. And some of the primary themes that we have seen as we've gone throughout the letter, is, one, this idea of partnership, that the church is made up of a community of people, and we are called to live out the gospel in partnership with other brothers and sisters in Jesus. Another primary theme is that of humility and service. Remember, in chapter 2, Paul held up the example of Jesus for us the humility of Jesus that led him to come to earth, uh, to give his life in service to his people, to ultimately experience death on a cross for others. And throughout the letter, we've seen Paul applying what Jesus did to the lives of the, the followers of Jesus in the church at Philippi. In other words, calling them to this same pattern of imitation, this same lifestyle of humble service to those around us. And so that brings us to our conclusion this morning. I want to read for us verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are spoken of on the pages of Scripture, and you are spoken of in this particular passage of Scripture. And our prayer is that through your Holy Spirit, you would make real to us what we have just read. We pray that you would make application to our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would form us and train us in discipleship to Jesus. Help us to see him, who he is, and what he's done for us. And we pray that you would do that whether we are believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe in this moment. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Over 400 years ago, a pastor by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Secret of Christian Contentment, or The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I think that the title of his book applies even today, doesn't it? The Rare Jewel of Contentment. I like those words that he uses because contentment, at least in my own life, does very much feel like a rare jewel it often feels so elusive, like it's almost impossible to grasp. I mean, I don't know how many times I could point to my life and say, there, at that point, in that moment, I was really fully content. We always want more. We're always restless. We're always discontented, right? And as we've talked about anxiety some in the past uh, couple weeks, Uh, A same dynamic applies when we're talking about discontentment, and that is this, that the culture in which we live breeds discontentment, doesn't it? We're always confronted with the possibility of more. We're always confronted with messages that communicate that what we have is not enough. It's not sufficient. And so we follow the trails of those temptations, those calls, Uh, that come to us from our culture. And what ends up happening is more and more discontentment is bred in our lives. We could say this, that contentment is one of the hardest virtues to attain. I mean, is this speaking to you? Would you agree um, that this whole idea of of, of contentment is just one that it's like, yeah, as you're talking about this, have I ever been content? And how do I become content? How, how does this work? Well, the Apostle Paul, uh, one final reminder of the context, is writing this letter under house arrest. He's essentially imprisoned for preaching the good news of Jesus. And yet he, in that situation, in those circumstances, writes the words that we just read together, that he has learned how to be content whether he has a lot or a little. So let's learn from the wisdom of this passage this morning. I want to raise two questions for us to consider as we walk through the passage together. The first is, what is contentment? And then the second question we're going to ask is, how do we attain it? All right? What is contentment and how do we attain it? In these verses, the warmth, the affection of Paul really comes through. Now, I've been saying all along throughout this series, and we've seen it at different places, you know, I've stressed how important the Philippians were to Paul, that they really did hold a special place in his heart, because as he uh, fleshes out here in these verses, they have been in partnership with him in his own words since the beginning of the gospel. What does he mean by that? Well, since Christianity took root in the Roman Empire, since the Christian movement was launched essentially, from the time that the Philippian church was established, they have been in partnership with Paul. They have been committed to him. They have been supportive of him. And for that reason, they hold a very special place in his heart. In fact, you, you, you heard as I read that he says that um, even when there weren't any other churches supporting Paul, the Philippian church... Did Now, we're going to come back to some of the implications and application of this in the second point, but as we get into this passage, it's important for us to not only seal, but to feel a little bit of this warmth, um, this affection that Paul has for the Philippians. Now, what is contentment? H- how, how would we define it? He said, Paul says in verse 11, not that, I am in speak, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Well, what is clear from this passage is that contentment does not mean self sufficiency. Now, why would I even point that out? I point that out because I think so often in our lives, we can't help but to think about trying to arrive at a place of contentment apart from self-sufficiency. And we're going to get into this more as well in in the second point, Um, but it's always so elusive, as we talked about, this wanting to arrive at this place of contentment. It seems like it's always out there, that we never arrive. It's something that we're always aspiring toward and for. But here's the deal. So often, we try to reach a place of contentment according to our own effort and our own strength and energy, don't we? It's, okay, I'm, I recognize I'm really discontent right now. I need to figure out how to be more content. So I'm going to try X, Y, or Z. And X, Y, or Z may be helpful things, um, but we're really relying on self, aren't we? Content, this word that we're using, comes from a Greek word that means self-sufficient or independent. Now, the Stoics, a group, a philosophical group in the ancient culture in which Paul lived and ministered, Elevated this word uh, to the chief place of all virtues. Because as they saw it, what was most important in life was to reach this point, this place where you could be, the, the individual could be free from all want or needs. In other words, for the Stoics, contentment was equated with self sufficiency. When you reach a point in which you are self sufficient, whatever that would mean or look like, right, Um, you have reached contentment. It's a human achievement. That is contrary to how Paul is talking about contentment in this passage. In Roman culture, self-sufficiency was really the key. It was saw as the key um, to weathering life's storms, the difficulties and trials that came into the lives of people. So for now, we're just going to say that according to Paul, contentment is not self-sufficiency. But contentment is also not complacency. It's not complacency. We can't equate it with complacency. Um, if you are familiar with the Bible, you would know that in various places of Scripture, the Bible encourages us to labor, to work hard, and to receive the rewards that come from that So Paul is not simply calling us to be passive. Um, He's not calling us to be self-sufficient, to make an idol out of human achievement, but he's also not calling us to just simply be passive and wait around for contentment uh, to mark our lives. So what is it? Well, in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This verse here highlights contentment for Paul. It's not self-sufficiency. It's not um, passivity. It's life in Jesus. Life in Jesus. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's clear about the source, isn't he? It comes through. It comes from Jesus into his life. Um, But he also clearly indicates that he does things, doesn't he? He does things. He he puts in effort. He, He works. But ultimately, the source of this power, the source of this strength, ultimately, the source of this contentment comes from the person of Jesus Christ. So contentment for Paul means very Obviously, given his current circumstances in writing this letter of being under house arrest, contentment means not being tossed to and from by the difficult circumstances of life. And deep down inside, that's what we all want. We want to reach a place in life where we don't feel like we're so tossed all over the place By every difficult situation or circumstance that comes into our lives. We want an inner restfulness. We want an inner peace. We want inner contentment. How do we attain it? We're going to spend more time on this one. You already heard me twice say we're going to come back to that under the second point. So um, we're already into the second point. How do we attain contentment? How do we attain this contentment that Paul defines ultimately as life with Jesus? Consider how the world around us goes about the quest for contentment. It's always a pressure to do more, to want more, to try to become more. And so we try to do more. We try to become more. I forget the other thing I said, but whatever it was, we try to do that too. We try, try, try. We work hard, hard, hard. We receive and live by these messages of our culture, and actually it does the opposite of what we're after. Rather than leading us into a place of contentment, it leads us into a place of greater discontentment. That's the, the, the trick there. That's the downfall. It's the pitfall of this message that our culture gives us about how to attain contentment. First, I want you to think about this. Contentment comes from living with and for Jesus. Contentment comes from living with and for Jesus. Formation, we keep saying this throughout Philippians. It's true throughout the New Testament, the Bible as a whole. Paul is after formation in his own life and in the lives of these disciples of Jesus in Philippi. Did you catch twice as I read that Paul refers to having to learn this. He, he, he had to learn how to be content. In verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then later on, um, he refers to this learning as well. This should encourage us um, right off the bat. If Paul had to learn it, if it was okay for Paul to have to learn it, We have to learn it, and it's okay for us to have to learn it as well. And maybe that encourages you where you are this morning, because maybe you just carry around so much guilt and shame because you haven't arrived at this place of contentment, whatever that might be or look like. You carry around guilt and shame, and that carries over into your relationship with God. It affects the way that you approach Him. But Paul has formation in mind here. This is a process. It doesn't come to us naturally, and this transformation or this formation doesn't happen instantaneously, all right? It doesn't come to us naturally, and it doesn't happen instantaneously. Now, on the one hand, that probably encourages us, but on the other hand, it frustrates us because like anything else in life, we want it to come naturally, and we want it to happen instantaneously, But part of living wisely in God's world is to recognize the truth here, that it doesn't uh, come to us naturally and it doesn't happen instantaneously. So, yeah, it might be frustrating, but once we recognize that and embrace it, we're on the path of wisdom because we're being true to what actually is, how life actually is working in and around us. Paul, um, if you look down, he, he, he refers to this gift, the gift that the Philippians gave him um, through Epaphroditus. This goes back to, I think, probably week one of the series. Epaphroditus was a guy um, from the Philippian church who, on behalf of the church, went to deliver this gift to Paul. And Paul, as he speaks about it, he speaks about this gift um, pleasing offering and this sacrifice that is acceptable. It's a fragrant offering. These terms all echo back to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And so the giving that Paul has in mind that he's referring to here is the fulfillment and culmination of all of those earlier systems. Throughout the Old Testament, God would say things such as this to his people yes, you're bringing me these sacrifices. You're going through the motions. You're going through the rituals, but I want your heart. I want you. And here, without using those words, that's what the Philippian church is actually living out. They're living out heart's devotion to God and love of neighbor. And so that's why Paul can say, that these gifts that benefit Paul are also an act of worship to god it 's sacrificial living the way that it 's meant to be done, not for the benefit of self, not for the purpose of going through motion and ritual, but out of love for god and and others and so from both Paul and the Philippians, we see how this is to play out now i 'm going to come back to this in a few moments because this is an important part. It, this is a reciprocal relationship. It goes both ways. In times of need, what is the greatest temptation or struggle in times of need? For me, I am tempted to be consumed by worry. I worry, I worry, and I worry. How is my situation going to improve? And then from there, what I do is I go into self-sufficiency mode. All right, what must I do to improve my situation? How must I contribute? How can I save myself? That's my temptation. I don't know if you can relate to that. But in other words, I forget dependence. At the heart of the Christian faith, the heart of the Christian life is dependence, dependence on Jesus. And when I find myself in difficult circumstances, Paul was in a difficult set of circumstances. When I find myself in difficult circumstances, it's so easy for me to forget dependence and to move into immediately, all right, it's about me. I have to do something here to protect myself, to save myself. What is your greatest temptation in times of abundance? Now, The word abundance might throw you off because you might react to that word and say, I've never uh, lived a season of abundance. But abundance has to do with when when we think things are going relatively well, when we just sense and feel like God is showering his blessings on us. What is the greatest temptation then? Well, for me, it's to be consumed with these blessings. To be consumed with the, my material stuff or, or whatever, the, whatever form the blessings might take, but I become consumed with them. And my trust shifts from God and being thankful to Him to how can I get more? How can I really tap into this abundance? How, how can I have more of this? And so, what ends up happening? I move into self-sufficiency. So did you catch that? With both the tempta- in both times of need and times of abundance, the end game, the end result as far as temptation and where we are um, likely to so often go is the same. It's self-sufficiency. But Christ says, I can or Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, Paul does not set abundance and need against each other. You know, I, I think that's maybe an error in our, in our thinking here. Um, it can be easy for us to, to read these verses and to um, think that, okay, we should actually try to avoid abundance. Uh, it's much better for us in relationship with God uh, to have as little as possible to suffer. Um, and that could be true for some of us. Uh, our generosity and stewardship class started this morning. Um, This was week one of four. And you are welcome to enter into the class at any point. And I would encourage, like, every one of you should be there because generosity, stewardship, money, it's relevant to all of us. And week one, this class this morning, being taught by Mike Tolliver was fantastic. But in the class, Mike talked about law and wisdom. And see, sometimes what we, we tend to do is we take what is meant to be wisdom and we turn it into a law. So for some of us, we may be called to a lifestyle of living with as little as possible. But that doesn't mean that everybody is called to that. God blesses some and desires abundance for some so that they might be good stewards of it and bless his kingdom in a different way. All right. So Paul is not setting abundance against need. That's not what he's doing. He said that he's lived through both seasons. Both seasons are good. They come from God's hand. It's a matter of how we react and respond in those seasons. It's a matter of how do we find contentment in those seasons. So neither a situation of need nor one of abundance is necessarily better. Both are potentially dangerous. Both potentially Uh, come, or they do come with their own pitfalls. And we're all the same with this. We all struggle with this. We want better this, more uh, uh, of that. And learning contentment is a process, right? It's a process. It's It's a process of formation. And I think that's why Paul uses the word secret in the passage, that he has learned the secret of contentment. Why would he say that? I think he would say that because, as we've already talked about, this is such a hard thing for us to know how to approach. It's such a hard thing for us to attain. There's mystery to it, right? We we, we don't know how to to go about it. And the Christian gospel offers us something unique. And, And I want to start going down That road together. And to get us there, I want to share with you, um, I came across an article this week uh, that was published um, last month in Forbes magazine. And the title was, Stop Searching for Contentment, the Value of an Unsettled Mind. And at the beginning of this article, the author says, striving for constant contentment is like striving to eat only ice cream. Some of you are like, that sounds good to me both will leave you feeling miserable. So even if that sounds good to you, if you try to do that, you're going to end up feeling miserable. I say this, the author says, because most of us are striving to be contented. And then toward the end of this article, he says, perhaps if we could simply embrace our lack of contentment and not fall prey to actually becoming depressed about it, we'd be better overall. So in a weird kind of way... At least my takeaway from this article is that the author is basically saying, don't even try to attain contentment because you're always restless, you're always discontented, and so what's going to happen is that it's only going to make you feel worse. Now, here's the thing. There's actually a lot of truth in what he's saying. I mean, that is the, the difficult dynamic, isn't it? Like, we've, we've been touching on this in, in different ways, that this thing, contentment, that we are trying to attain, like we wonder, is it actually really attainable? It's so elusive. And so often as we pursue it, we find ourselves just feeling more and more miserable because we're never arriving there, and so we feel guilty, we, see, we feel shame about it, we feel frustration. This dynamic is very real, And so it makes sense that this author would see these dynamics in the experience of life and basically come to the conclusion that he comes to, which is, don't even bother trying to pursue contentment. Now, we don't want to necessarily arrive at that same conclusion. However, here's where Christianity provides us with something unique. Paul is not so much inviting us into a pursuit of contentment. He's inviting us into a pursuit of Jesus. He's inviting us to know Jesus more, to follow Jesus more closely. And guess what happens when we know Jesus more and we follow Jesus more closely? Our lives are changed. We're formed. We are in the midst of this incredible process, this incredible journey by which Jesus has rolled up his sleeve, so to speak, and he is at work in our lives, changing us and forming us into someone we could never be in our own self-sufficiency. And so do you get what I'm saying? In a weird way, not in a weird way, the author is correct. And so the call of this passage is not to try to attain contentment, to make that your goal, to fixate on it. Rather, make Jesus your goal. Fixate on Jesus. Now, this isn't a magic trick. Remember what we said. Growing in contentment is not something that comes naturally, nor is it something that happens instantaneously. So if you leave uh, this place uh, this morning and say to yourself, okay, now I'm really going to get serious about following Jesus so that I can be content, you're going to end up frustrated. Now, in following Jesus, like I said, don't get me wrong, you will over time become more content, but you are not going to become to, to attain full contentment overnight. It's not a magic trick. This is life. It's a process. It's a journey. And because it doesn't come naturally, Because we are naturally bent on living for ourselves, it makes the process really hard. But Jesus is gracious enough, Jesus is resourceful enough to change us over time and to increasingly bring us into deeper and deeper places of contentment. This is what Paul means when he says that he has learned this secret. So, contentment comes from living with and for Jesus, but it also comes from living with and for others. Remember, one of the primary themes of the letter to the Philippians is humility and service. Uh, Again, chapter 2, we have that great hymn or poem where Paul highlights uh, the the work uh, of Jesus of his willingness to come to earth, to die uh, on our behalf. And right after that section, the following passage, Paul highlights two individuals. And basically what he's doing in those uh, later verses of chapter 2 is saying, all right, here's the model example of Jesus. Now, remember we said back then, we can't duplicate the the lifestyle of Jesus in the same way. Jesus is unique as the Son of God. Jesus' um, work and what he did is redemptive. Um, It saves us when we trust in what he's done for us. Um, Our work on behalf of others can't save them. It's not redemptive. However, Paul still calls us to that pattern of imitation. Imitate Jesus in that way. And so he highlights I think it was uh, Timothy and Epaphrodites at the end of chapter 2, and says, all right, look at these guys. Let me hold up these two individuals as examples. Here's what the life of Jesus looks like lived through the lives of real people, seeking to live for the other and bless the other. And so contentment comes from living with and for others. It's not just living with and for Jesus. It's living with and for others. You just get the sense here that Paul is, and it's crazy because of his circumstances, being under house arrest, not knowing his outcome, whether he'll be released or executed. But even in the midst of that, you get this sense that he is just overflowing with blessing, with gratitude, highlighting the gift that these Philippians have blessed him with, not just once, but throughout his Ministry, and it's remarkable too the way that he talks. Um, it, it, in verse fifteen, he says that that's where he talks about how they basically have been supportive um, of him from the very beginning of the Christian movement in in, uh, in giving and receiving. That's key there, giving and receiving. Paul was blessed by the Philippians. The Philippians' willingness to humbly serve Paul impacted his faith deeply. It provided opportunities for Paul to see the very person and presence of Jesus embodied in the lives of disciples. And we all need that. We all need that. Life in community is hard. Life in community is messy. But that's what Jesus has in mind. He doesn't want to place us in something that's easy because we're not going to be forced to grow. Life in community is hard because we are sinners. But we need each other. We need the giving and the receiving. We need to receive from others. We need to receive blessing. We need to to receive Christ-centered example. We need to to receive um, provision from others. And that involves humility, doesn't it? Paul, it's almost like we have this view of Paul sometimes in which we think he's like superhuman, and it's almost awkward that he is dependent on other people that he needs from others. Paul is not Jesus. Remember, Paul says, I could do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. Paul needs Jesus just like we need Jesus, but Paul made himself dependent, and that's an important principle for us. In community, we must make ourselves dependent on others. I know that that makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to have to be dependent on others. We like to be self-sufficient. And so the calling is not simply to exist in community, but it's to be connected to real relationships in community in a way that actually requires us to be dependent on other people. But it's not only that. It's the giving and the receiving We are also to be in community in in such a way that we make ourselves obligated to others. So we're dependent on others, but we're also obligated to others. We receive, but we also give. We invest time and energy and resources into the flourishing of our brothers and sisters around us. Giving and receiving. Contentment comes from living with and for others. How is this? Why is this the case? It's because living with and for others erodes our self-sufficiency. It takes the focus off of ourselves and places it on others. And guess what happens as a result? We fixate less on all the things that we think we need, all the things that we think we want, because we're more concerned with the needs of our brothers and sisters around us. So contentment comes from living with and for Jesus, but also from living with and for others. The life of Christianity is one of partnership. We can't have this attitude of, all right, it's just simply me and Jesus. That is the temptation for so many in the American church. The individualism is a value of our culture, and inevitably, whether we like it or not, it makes its way into the life of the church and gets expressed in a variety of ways. And one of those ways is we think that it's enough for us to follow Jesus alone. That is not how Jesus has set it up. I'll say it this way. This is one way of applying the text, that we cannot flourish as much as Jesus wants us to, We cannot receive all the blessings that Jesus has for us in the Christian life apart from real in-depth relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we're going to be forced to grow in community and we're also going to receive the growth or fruit that happens in the lives of other people. We're going to see Jesus more concretely, more tangibly in those around us. And so it's not an option for us to live the Christian life individualistically. And it's really cool how Paul brings all of this to a close. And this has been the case all throughout the letter, and it's the case with all of Paul's letters. You get real names of people. Um, Timothy, Epaphroditus, um, those interesting names at the beginning of of chapter 4, Wayne preached on that passage. Uh, Udia and synchity, however Wayne said it, go with that. (laughs) But real names, real people. And that's how the Christian life is experienced by us. Not in a vacuum, but in real places, Wilmington, Newark, Kennett, wherever you live, you live in a place with a name, and you identify yourself with that place. And in church life, Uh, We're not generic people. We're people with real names, with real issues. Even though you don't want to be in relationship with that person because they drive you crazy, Jesus has put you in relationship with that person. Real people, real names, same kind of stuff going on in Philippi. Remember, this chapter begins with Paul saying, all right, you have to help these two women reconcile because life is messy and um, there's something that's happened. We don't know what it was, but they're not right with each other. So as a church, help them apply the, the gospel, the, help them apply the good news of Jesus to this situation. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, he says. It's that affection of Paul. And, and Paul knew some of these people by name. Very first week of this series, we looked at um, briefly, or I talked about Acts chapter 16. It's where Paul goes into the city of Philippi, And three people in particular respond to the good news. Lydia, who was a businesswoman, uh, a young woman who was possessed by demonic spirit, who was freed from that, and then a Philippian jailer. Different races, different economic economic, uh, statuses. Those three individuals are the first three members of the church. So Paul knew those three people at least by name, and then he knew others, of course, as well. And he says, greet the saints. Some of these real people that Paul would have known, greet them in Christ Jesus. All the saints greet you, give, you know, give and receive, especially those of Caesar's household. It's not exactly clear what this means, whether it's very specifically the actual household of Caesar himself, or if it's just referring to, um, you, you could say, the government as a whole and those who have come to know Jesus from um, positions uh, high up positions within the Roman Empire. Either way, it's a clear indication that the gospel is penetrating the empire, and this would have been super encouraging for the Philippians that this gospel is real. It's, it's, it's even transforming those people who are, are over us. And then finally, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, and that really brings us full circle. The grace of the Lord. Jesus Christ. How do we reach a place of contentment in our lives? It's by living with and for Jesus, living with and for others. But grace is always the source. Grace is always the motivation. The fact that we have favor with God because of what Jesus has done for us changes the way that we think about these things. We feel less of the need to want and want and want because we realize that actually we really have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's pray. God in heaven, take us into deeper and deeper places of contentment not as we necessarily try to be more content, but as we seek to know Jesus and experience him more. We thank you for your word. We thank you in particular for the letter to the Philippians and how it had an impact in Paul's day, but still has an impact as it has changed us and taught us in so many ways. We pray that you would give us the joy of partnership in the gospel with each other as we seek to live with and for you together. We pray all of this for your glory and our good. Amen.